Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you live in your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. And welcome back to the Black Psychologist Podcast. We appreciate everybody being here and listening. You could be anywhere in the world, but you're here listening and watching us. So uh, we're grateful for that. So thank you for everybody being back. I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for your listening pleasures, Dr. Kyle Osborne. And of course, I'm never, ever, ever here by myself. I'm here with the one and only. He's the king of health. There is none higher. Sucker MC should call him <laughs> sire. To burn his kingdom, you must use fire. He won't stop rocking till he retires. Dr. Jason Coleman, how are you? Good. What's sir? up? What's up, man? Nothing. I'm man. good, bro. I'm good, man. You know, yeah. Another week in the books. You know, it was a hot one this week out here in Jersey and Philly. Um but we good. We still here, nonetheless. So I'm not complaining. Bless. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And of we, course, we, uh... of course, we want to thank everybody for listening, um, tuning in, subscribing. Um, always humbled by the support every week. Um, and we just want to thank everybody for listening. Encourage everybody to share, subscribe. Please tell a friend. Um, and just, just uh, thankful. So you know, that's really about it, bro. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, definitely keep the comments uh, coming. You know, as you see, Dr. J and I were also we're very interactive and we like engaging with um, our listeners and our watchers. So definitely continue to send your comments and your ideas. And absolutely, like we've talked about and how we've posted on our various platforms is that we want you guys to be engaged in the conversation. So uh, we have our email up and running the black psychologist. Um podcast at gmail.com so you know send us the video just about any questions any statements and things that you guys want to talk about any topics we want you guys to be as involved as much as possible so and you know we'll bring the video up on uh on the episode so you know you can be you can get famous see yourself on on, on the pod you know? so uh yeah, I, don't but, yeah, know about, I don't know about famous but you can I, get on the podcast i don't know about famous <laughs> <laughs> You know, but definitely I echo everything that Dr. J just said. All right. So uh, without further ado, let's get into it. So the first topic of the agenda is uh, we're throwing it back. We're going to do a little bit of a history lesson. So in 1870 in Fairfax or Richmond, Virginia, they opened up the very first mental hospital exclusively for black patients. All right. You want to you want to hear what the title is, what the what the name of the hospital is, Jay? It was called the Central Lunatic Asylum for the Colored Insane. All right. And it was. Let uh, that sink in for a second. Yeah. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. One more time. Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored Insane. Okay. Yeah. It was formerly a uh, Confederate facility and until the Commonwealth took over. So. Um, so, yeah, it was. um I was taken aback by the name just as when I read it. I had to read it a couple of times myself uh, because right. it has pretty much every inappropriate word when we're talking about right. mental health um, in it. You know, uh, so, yeah, this was um, this, this was something. I mean, uh, give, give me your thoughts about it as, as you read through that article. I mean, obviously, it's important for us to consider, you know, um, it was opened in June 1870. So in terms of the context, in terms of the time. Central Lunatic Asylum for Colored and for the Colored Insane, right? So we got to understand this is the antebellum South. Um, it, what I found this in, this article is very interesting, right? Because it connects a lot of things that are going on now and then, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the let's say apprehension that individuals of color have when it comes around the mental health system, right? This is an important piece of history because it begins here. It really begins before this, right? But this, this is a, a one of the first places where this is documented, right? Um, 
So we have the antebellum self and we have pseudoscience that is going going around and commonly accepted that we're talking about individuals who have just been through slavery, right? right. Um, blacks were immune from mental illness because they lacked the stress of property ownership, right? So individuals who've been through generations of slavery, you know, which we, what was commonly accepted from experts in the field is that, you know, we're, we essentially were immune from mental illness because we lacked the stress of property, own, property ownership, right? So what's so ironic, obviously, is that African-Americans were treated as property, right? And all of the things that we went through in terms of being breeding, right? Having our children ripped away from us, right? Having families, you know, exterminated, you know, the common belief was that we were immune from mental illness because we lacked the stress of property ownership. So when you look at individuals now, you know, um, and they lack the confidence in the mental health system, medical system, those things, this is where it started, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I was very intrigued by this article because I thought it was interesting. I had never really heard of this, you know, Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, you have your moments reading through, you know, but what did you think about it? So initially I was shocked, right? I I didn't totally believe it. And like you said, it's, it's like a journey as you read through the article for the reason that of those that you just mentioned, like slaves were deemed as property. So they can't, if they're property, then that means that they can't have stress. They can't, they don't have emotions. They don't have any of these other different feelings or any other type of things. So my, my initial thought was, well, why would they even be providing care or providing a hospital specifically for black individuals or or former slaves if they're their property right so for me i thought that was kind of a contradiction i didn't i didn't understand the thought process with that then as i continued to read through it then it was like oh well you know a lot of them you know were there for physical labor right so the black people they were admitted based off of the word of like former employees or, or former employers and other white people rather than say you know, they were brought in by like a family member or from the community. Like if they were observed being in some form of distress or having an episode, then they were brought into the hospital. No, they were right. brought in and they were expected to engage in physical labor. So, right. It, so it started to make sense that, OK, so it wasn't the goal wasn't entirely to get these individuals help because they were dealing or experiencing some distress. They were going to be putting these patients and these people back to work. Right. So it started to, it started to make, you know, a lot more sense as far as, OK, I, I see, you know, some of the other, you know, the alternative motive involved with this with this situation, which also, like you said, it connects the dots, because already if you're advertising, hey, we're going to, you know, come in, we're going to treat you for whatever condition and then we're going to put you to work again. That's the, you know, connecting further connecting the dots of the historical mistrust of, you know, Black individuals in the health system. So, you know, it would, absolutely, you started to learn more and it became more and more interesting as you read on. I mean, and remember, right, this is 1870, right? Um, so not only were half the patients that were there, well, no, not only were the patients there, a large majority of them admitted through like the words of employers, Confederates, those type of things, they said half the patients that were there were there due to homelessness, joblessness, dislocation, or medical issues, right? So this was not necessarily a a, a mental health facility. This was a place for, quote unquote, people who couldn't survive or didn't have the skills to survive on their own, right? Right. Or indentured servitude, wherever you want to bring it, right, at this part. So these were, this was a place to put individuals who could not necessarily support themselves or survive on their own, right? Um, and they were still getting physical labor out of them. And I, what I thought was ironic was how they drew the comparison between a facility like this, where you have half of the people in there who are in there for non-mental health related reasons, and our some of our behavioral health facilities in our jails now, right? Um, and if you go in there um, and you've had a day worth of training in mental health you know, you'll realize that over half the patients there don't have necessarily mental health issues. <laughs> They're issues that are grounded in other ways that are impacting their life. So 
Um, I just thought it was, you know, it was definitely sad, you know, but it's a it's an important piece, right? Because when we go, when we bring go from there to now, right? And I'm not drawing a direct correlation, but when we talk about why you have some individuals who are so hesitant to take a COVID-19 vaccine, this is part of the reason why, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, because all the way back then, right? You you have the individuals who are the professionals who are in charge, right? Who were pushing these lies in this pseudoscience, right? Um, and we're talking about ex-slaves. We're talking about multi-generational trauma, right? The individuals who would probably be the most worthy of therapeutic services, um, you know, and immediately after they're quote unquote free, you know, um, they're victims in another capacity, right? Uh, so I thought it was just interesting how, you know, you can kind of draw that line. But I, I do think it's important that the history is preserved, right? Because, um, you know, before people call us emotional or call us uninformed, you know, it's important that we have this history so, you know, we can show people, you know, why some individuals or certain groups, you know, aren't as trustful of these systems. And in addition to that, um, there's also the, the aspect of thinking, OK, well, where do we go from here? Because I'm totally going to say there's a strong correlation between what was going on then and very similar to what's happening now. Not only for okay the right. deception of services that you're you know pretending to offer you know black individuals, but even to the point where like you mentioned, half of the patients that were there weren't coming in there for medical reasons. You know, it weren't at least they weren't coming right. in for their medical you know for their mental health, which is the same now. A lot of patients, if you come into any city area inpatient facility, whether it be Friends, it be Fairmount, whether it be you know Episcopal, whether it be you know all these other different inner city um, inpatient facilities, a decent or half of the population are there for housing unfortunately, right? They're there because they're homeless. They're there because they don't have any place to go. You definitely see the the surplus of admissions in all of these hospitals, especially when it gets cold outside, right? They have these cold blues. They have all these different things. So it's now looking at, okay, well, what has changed, right? Just looking at the mental health system, as far as you're looking at inpatients or psychiatric units, what's changed that the same thing that was going on there is happening now? What are we doing to improve? What are we doing to properly assess patients and not to say that, oh, well, if they don't have an issue, they don't deserve housing or anything. But it's like, okay, this is an even bigger problem that stems from all the way back from 1870. So, you know, it's thinking about, okay, what what has changed and what haven't we done? What are the missteps that are continuing to happen? And I mean, I think that's important, right? Because, you know, you start hearing people have these conversations nowadays about like reparations and all all of these things, right? And all of them are kind of done under the umbrella of like, what do people of color need, right? People have been asking that question for a very long time. Like, what do people need? Is it money? Is it school? Is it? And, and my answer to individuals have always been, it's a complicated and multi-layered question, right? Because you're going to need a multifaceted approach. And why do I bring that up in, in the middle, in the midst of this discussion, right? Because we're talking about institutions and structural racism, right? That's pervasive through medical institution, law institution, criminal justice, education, housing, and mental health, right? This is an example of it. That's why I said it's so important, right? Because we see it popping up in so many places, whether it's Donald Trump in the 80s getting sued for housing discrimination, you know, um, whether it's all of these things that we're, we're about to talk about in the next article in, in terms of discrimination against people of color in the medical institutions. We know what's going on in the schools. We can we can take that back to Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, um, Kenneth and Mamie Clark, my my heroes in terms of the black dog experiment. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason why people of color are distrustful of these systems. Right. But we have to have this information when people call us emotional, right? We have to have this information. Um, so I, I just think that it's important that we draw these distinctions because again, when we're talking about multi-generational trauma and we're talking about structural racism, it impacts all of these systems, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to 
connect the dots from the historical disregard surrounding black mental health, because that's what it is. Right. It's a situation where thinking, OK, this is how they used to minimize and completely disregard. Right. You were looked at as property. And it was to even to the extent where if slaves tried to escape, that was deemed as a mental illness. Right. Right. Drapetomania was an actual term or diagnosis that they used for someone, you know, trying to escape slavery. But they're also right. deemed as property. And so somebody who had had the nerve to want to want to wander and want and want their freedom, not want to be bound. Right. And you had. And again, when we talk about distrust of the system, we had American physicians, licensed physicians pushing this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we will visit in the next article. Right. Um, individuals of color of specifically do not trust people in these systems, whether you have a white coat or not, with their health, you know, um, and in a lot of cases, they're very, they're, they're correct. Yeah, they are. So, you know, it's, you have to understand the history in order for us to be like, okay, what has changed, what hasn't changed. And unfortunately, you know, even us being unbiased and working in the field, not a lot has changed. Right. And like you said, it's a multifaceted situation and a lot of different things are going to need to be addressed on a various different levels. So, uh, but this was, um, especially being an inpatient guy myself, um, I, I really enjoyed, you know, reading this article um, because it, it, I was, I was blown away. Like I was totally shocked that they're, you know, but of course, unfortunately, when it looks like it's like, okay, this is really good. It, it it's, it's something different entirely. So, um, so, you know, this makes me honestly prompts me to want to look and do other research and see, um, you know, what other type of facilities and other different historical facts were, were taking place right aside. Cause you know, if this happened in Virginia, this wasn't the only place where this was taking place at. So, um, no, you're right, man. you know, so definitely I mean, the, the good thing, morning. the good thing about this place is that I think they were saying there was over 800,000 records that were preserved. Um, right. yeah. so, and I think they're, you know, this place is on the map. So they're kind of preserving this as like, Obviously not a positive moment in history, but, you know, something that we can look back on and learn from in terms of, you know, not only cultural competent, culturally competent care, but in terms of being more considerate of why, you know, minorities in particular are skeptical of uh, us as mental health professionals and the system in general. Absolutely. So something to continue to, to, uh, you know, be on the lookout for. All right. So moving along to our next topic. You know, back into the sports realm. So the NFL recently promised an end to race norming. What's race norming? All right. So race norming is a controversial practice that curbs black players' cognitive test scores with data that assumes their lower level of function. So this is part of uh, this all came about as part of a payout process in the one billion dollar plus settlement in a class action concussion litigation against the league. So in 2017, for those people, uh, for those of us that don't remember, uh, the NFL paid out more than $800 million to uh, more than uh, 1,000 former players that were diagnosed with dementia, Alzheimer's, and uh, any brain-related disease that were um, related to due to concussions. So this is when the CTE and all this information started to come out. And so uh, once the, the NFL could no longer dispute that, you know, playing football and getting these concussion ha- was leading to um, all of these adverse neurological conditions um, that a lot of these former players were were experiencing after well into their retirement, you know, had they had this large payout. So where race norming comes into play uh, is that they were using race as a rough proxy for other factors that could affect the results in learning memory. So like such as looking at the socioeconomic background or looking at their education. So what took place is that during uh, the concussion payouts, what the NFL was doing, they were using, um, they had former black players that actually, uh, that were stating and filed suit saying that, well, you know what, they were using these race norming to prevent them from getting payouts. So you would have a player that would have the diagnosis of dementia, and then the NFL peeled some of these diagnoses from an outside physician and demanded that these test scores of some of these Black players get curved using the race-normed data. 
And then that would result in the reversal of the diagnosis. So that's something to think about, right? So think about you're a retired player. You've experienced concussions. You're starting to experience some of these symptoms. Um, And so the NFL says, all right, we're going to, you know, we're going to pay out this money to these retired players. So you get the diagnosis from your physician or from your neurologist or such. You get the diagnosis of dementia, Alzheimer's or what have you. And then the NFL comes in and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's take a look at this data. Ah, uh, you know what? According to, you know, this normative data that we have, because you're black, it doesn't appear that you would have qualified for this anyway, because of your data states that you're already below the grade where, you know, you're not experiencing any defects due to the concussions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, I mean, that was just mind blowing to me that this was even being utilized. You know, what, what, what would you take away from this? I mean, listen, we knew it before, but it's playing now, right? The NFL does not care about the physical or mental well-being of their players, right? They don't care. It was obvious with CTE, right? Mm-hmm. They denied it for a decade after every person with two brain cells knew that it was an issue, right? Um, it's documented that they have put tens of millions of dollars into studies that say the opposite of CTE to mislead the public, right? Paid scientists the whole deal, allegedly, you know, because I don't want them to sue me, allegedly. Allegedly. Um, we saw them ban kneeling, right, until they were publicly shamed and until basically until George Floyd was murdered on camera. Um, the reason why this is important, they're curving people's scores, right? And it may seem like a simple thing, but people have to understand when it comes to neuropsychology, This is very important because they're using the scores to determine cognitive impairment, Mm -hmm. which directly determines the amount of money and the type of care that people get. So with this individual, he was diagnosed by an outside doctor with dementia. The NFL took him to court and this was reversed. Right. We all know what dementia does to people. Right. Seventy percent of the players in in the NFL are black. Right. So we don't know how many people have been suffering for the last couple of decades, right? Because of this racist policy, mm-hmm. this, this, the, the fact that they utilize these policies and that they're individuals with our same degrees and level of education, right. Who will use this in reports, right. makes me ashamed to be a part of the fraternity that I'm a part of. I'm going to be very honest with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and they got caught. Right. But this is another example of, structural racism within the medical community, right? Um, And again, it's another example of how black life is cheap in America, you know, um, and a devaluation of black bodies. I'm gonna continue to say it. The devaluation of black bodies, you know? First of all, they gave them a billion dollars, which was peanuts, right? They gave them a billion dollars. Dallas Cowboys are worth five billion I'm gonna say, on their we all, own. We all know how many, how much money each organization is worth. Right. Alone. They gave them a billion dollars, and then it's under false pretenses, right? Because you gave them a billion dollars, and then you're trying to cheat them out of the, their fair share of that. Black life is cheap in America, right? Um, and again, the NFL is is one of the biggest examples. And again, the fact that this was not on Sports Center, right? ESPN, the leading story. They weren't talking about this all day long. It just leads me back to my whole point. Black life is cheap in America. You understand what I'm saying? And if you think I'm bugging, if you think I'm going too far, think about how much time they spent on the air talking about the amount of air that was in the Patriots footballs. Think about how much time we spent talking about that, right? On every day. Deflated footballs. We spent hours and days. They were stories. Bro, I had to find this story. Black life is cheap in America, even if you're a multimillionaire athlete. Well, you know, you know it was interesting. And then the NFL, it was interesting on what ahead, they bro. did because, you know, they, they provided a very... Um, they, they provided a very positive smokescreen. Because they put it out and said, hey, you know, what? we're just going to we're going to distribute one billion dollars to former players, which sounds right. like a lot. Right. Okay? 
So we're going to give out $1 billion and we're going to distribute that to all the players. Because again, after they originally tried to deny any type of association with CTE, with dementia, with a lot of these players committing suicide, right? So once they couldn't fight that battle again, it's like, okay, let's just, let's throw a giant number out there. Let's throw a giant figure that when people see 1 billion, oh, they're going to be, okay, the NFL is getting this one right. Okay. So after that, people go away, right? The media, all these other different people, they that goes away because you're thinking that things are being taken care of on the home front. Not knowing here, you have these back channeling and you have all of these 70, 70% you mentioned, right? 70% of former NFL players are black. Okay. So that means how many people is that? I mean, think about it. We're looking at it on the individual level because you see 70%, but how many people did they literally, and we don't know, but I imagine it's a huge number that they actually reverse them and say, hey, you know what? No, you're not going to be able to, you know, get this money that's going to be able to give you the services and benefits that you can use to be able to financially afford, you know, your health, right? You're not going to be able to help yourself. Your family's not going to be able to afford to support you in these health needs after you played this game and you let you put your life on the line. So we're, we're, this, this number is okay, right? We got this $1 billion, but that's not for you. And we're going to actually have right. people come in and reverse that. And like you said, it's absolutely, it's, 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 you know, it is a form of shame that you feel that you had other people that get this training, right? Because we, we took an oath, right? We have all these other different things as a clinician to be unbiased and so on and so forth. We could, we could go down the whole list of the ethics that this is violating in our field. But it's a situation of how many people were actually affected that had to fight just to get funds and resources so they can be so they can take care of their health. That's after and this is right. after the, the, the diagnosis. It's not like they're, they're getting this, you know, preventative care. No, this is after they had to get the diagnosis first. It's not like they're giving it to all players and say, hey, you know what? You played in the NFL. So it's probably more than likely you've experienced a concussion somewhere along the lines. I don't care what, what position you played. So we're going to give this to all former players. It's like, no, you have to get a diagnosis first. So you have to be diagnosed with the neurological, you know, with the neurocognitive, you know, diagnosis, which is dementia, which could be from mild, severe, whatever the, you know, the individual is, and then we'll give you the money. But if you're black, nah, whoa, 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 whoa. Nah, we got this comparative data right here that says you don't qualify for this. Like, I mean, this is this is like on a, such an individual level. I can't imagine what one, you know, family is going through just trying to get services, just trying to get funds that they're owed anyway for playing this game. But they can't and think about it. Same, you know, you got the same and they always say fall on the shield. Right. They always talk about that with the NFL. But this is this is how you treat your former players like any individual. This is, this is maddening. All I would say is this: their statement is they're committed to eliminating race-based norms and uh, programs in neuropsychology, race-based norms and programs and in the neuropsychology community. Like, listen, first of all, we all know that's some bullshit, yep. okay? They're not committed to any of that. Um, and second, listen, this is, this is despicable, um, and I don't blame people for coming away from this and thinking – if a multi-million dollar athlete that plays for the New York Giants can't get appropriate medical care, what about me? That's all I'm going to say. So the damage that is done, you know, when individuals look doctors and nurses in their face and say, hell no, I'm not taking that vaccine, whether or not it's a good decision or not, I understand why some people are taking that vaccine or, or some people are not taking it, right? When, when people look me in my face and say, yo, I don't care what you say that my kid ain't taking that ADHD medication or I don't accept that diagnosis. These last two articles, this is why where it comes from, right? We have individuals who are in positions of power, who have taken a Hippoc Hippocratic oath or, you know, um, and this is what they do. It is. It's, it's I don't, I, again. You know, it is. It's, it's embarrassing know. for those that that participated in our field that went along with this with this sham. So, um, I I hope more. Well, it's, things still, it's still going on. So this yeah. is a to be continued. Yeah, so this, from yeah, what I, I got, 
I hope I hope that they continue too. to put them on blast. No, because they they absolutely more articles, and I, and I'm happy that you had some players that had the awareness or their families or or however the process played out that you had them willing to fight, right? You had them willing to seek litigation because this is this is important. This is your health. This is your life, right? So this is ongoing, and they need to continue to put the NFL on blast for these things because you you know and I know that there's more of this taking place. And so many other different factions and so many other different areas there. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Right. right. So there are so many other different things that we don't know that's going on to how these players are, are being treated and mishandled after they play. So, right. yeah, absolutely. This is to be continued. And I, and I hope they uncover more and more things. All right. So uh, next article we got is from Wired.com. Um, this was another interesting one. Um, hacker threatens to expose. Uh, therapy notes and information from patients. So this story came out of Finland. Uh, it's a company called Vastemo. They're like one of the largest mental health psychiatrics uh, or service companies in the country. Um, so basically, listen, there's been a lot of like ransomware attacks. We've heard about a big one that, that went on out West in the United States recently. Um, so they got control over the system. Um, got access to all the information and they're threatening to release the notes, right? So from what we see, um, the ransom that they're requesting is five, is about half a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, and they're also like, for lack of a better term, like shaking down individual patients, contacting them, asking them for $230 worth of Bitcoin within 24 hours, 590 worth within two uh, two days, or they're going to release they, their information. Um so obviously this has a big impact because, you know, people are very concerned about their medical record, um, even more concerned about mental health record being exposed. So what did you think when you heard about this um, in general? Like, yeah, You know, initially, to be honest, I thought this was very strange because you, you typically don't hear about, you know, you, you hear about, of course, like identity theft. You hear about, all you know, the leaks and different things, but you typically don't here at least i have and i can speak for myself of information like medical information being used right because that's essentially what they're doing they're weaponizing people's medical information they're you know they're medical um and, and and it just i don't know it was it was very strange in the sense of um it's atypical of how you know you're using someone's health records and say hey i'm going to expose it and you know i i get the sense that you know depending on, you know, um, the country, you know, mental health is not as widely open or, or spoken about, you know, as it is in the U.S. or as it's becoming. So um, I thought for an individual or an, an entity or a group or, or what have you to use this against individuals and to weaponize it. Um, yeah, I, I think this that's despicable. You know, I think that's that's something. Um, it, but it's you know, it's unusual. It's I don't know. It was it was very off putting that you would use someone who's getting treatment. You're going to use it to shake them down. I mean, it's definitely off putting, you know, like and they said a couple of times they were like, you know, even I guess with ransomware attacks, there's like a code of honor, I guess. And they don't usually yeah. do like with hospitals in certain places, which I kind of understand but then i don't because it's like you know when you start talking about criminals that got a code of honor it's like to me that goes left real fast um because i don't really i don't really believe in that um i'm not saying you know trying to get money whether they get it from safeway or the general hospital across the street i mean i don't really think they care um but i was thinking more of just the impact of it on kind of like a grand scale um and how it just may make more people just a little bit more apprehensive about seeking services because you know that vulnerability mm-hmm. you know and there's already so many barriers that people already have right so now you got to worry about think about if you live in finland right now if you were already apprehensive about oh is my therapist gonna like me is therapy gonna help me now you got to think about identity theft above and beyond all that um and your information being on some message board that people could purchase um so that's crazy um and then it just adds to conspiracy theories right like a lot of people already have crazy ideas about what we do what goes on in therapy what happens to your record and information 
Um, and for it to be out there, it just makes it worse, right? Because um, confidentiality is necessary for what we do to be successful. So I think that was kind of the biggest impact. I think people are going to think a lot about the confidentiality um, and just like, that's a big part of it. Like you got people who are essentially, for lack of a better term, like they're emotionally exposed, right? They're emotionally naked, like, you know, with the, your therapy notes out there. Um, people will probably pay anything if they think that that won't be released, if they have the funds. So I just think it opens the floodgates where if this is profitable, you don't want this to start to become a trend, right? Um, because think about if they were targeting places that might have high profile clients, right? Um, starts getting a little, it, it could start getting a little, a little crazy, you know, if this starts to become the norm. Yeah, it was um because I believe that this, I guess this um note processing or the this um this entity house uh, the majority of I guess therapy or mental health notes for this area. Um, yeah. So they had a significant amount of of data and people's informations, um, yeah. and that um I think that com- that compounds an individual that's already vulnerable. So now you're you're making them, like you mentioned, apprehensive. And now they might just be, hey, you know what? I don't even want to deal with this. And now this affects. Now you're, you're going to have more people going untreated. Now you're going to have right. more individuals that are just saying, hey, you know, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want this information to get out. Like you have to think about certain populations of people where you're talking about maybe the, the LGBTQ community. Or you're thinking about all these other different you know, vulnerable populations. And if that information gets out, that could be disastrous. It can make their, you know, their mental health even more severe or even more worse. Some of their symptoms, right? You could have people that are contemplating, you know, suicide because they don't want certain information to get out. Again, it really depends on the place and a lot of, you know, countries that I don't know what it's like. It's Finland, right? Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the... Yeah, I don't know what the temperature is as far as their culture surrounding mental health. You know, in in right. the U.S., it's maybe it might not be seen as severe depending on what's being documented. But you have, you know, it's more talked about. But in some of these other different areas, it's not. It's still very much taboo, and you know that could cause a great deal of distress for any individual that maybe their family doesn't know that they're in therapy or they're dealing with trauma, right? You're dealing with all these other different aspects and that could have a serious impact on that person's, you know, mental well-being that they may do something drastic. If they, what if they can't pay? Right. Right. What if they're not able to afford, you know, the ransom and then it gets posted out and then this, what this person has divulged, you know, turns in. And then also the other side of it is what if you have individuals whose information is divulged and that gets out there and now they're suing, you know, the therapist or they're suing, you know, the hospital for maybe for now. You know what? Right. You didn't you didn't protect our information. You know, what is your malware? Like it could go and spiral out into a lot of different directions. Um, and at the end of the day, the person is left exposed and you don't know how that individual is going to react. You don't know how they're going to cope with information being being possibly leaked. I mean, that that's a very scary position to go in or, or, or to be in. So, um, like I said, this is atypical, but, you know, of something that I've never heard happening uh, however, you don't want this to become a trend, like you mentioned. Yeah, that's a fact, man. I mean, we're gonna we'll see how it unfolds, but um, you know, again, you definitely just got to feel for the patients, um, and kind of you know the people that work there, right? Because I'm sure even people that I'm sure they don't know everybody whose information was released, and I'm sure every patient that goes there is aware, you know, of what happened. So if you think about the type of questions they're probably getting about confidentiality that they probably can't fully answer. Um, it's just a bad situation for everybody, right? But it's um, something for us to consider, especially service providers in terms of like what what you do in terms of protecting their information, right? So. Absolutely, you know, that, that could create a lot of different things. It can create a lot of distrust between client and clinician, client and the system, you know, it could, it could uh, affect a lot of different areas. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah. All right. So moving on to a lighter note, more positive note to Raji P. Henson. All right. 
So she recently launched a campaign to help black students fight mental health struggles and racism. So she created um, it's called the unspoken curriculum. So it's a mental health campaign that helps black students recognize signs of trauma and empowers them to seek help. It's a six week program running from May 17th to June 21st. And what it does is that it includes discussions with mental health experts and virtual hangout spaces moderated by therapists and by educators where students can speak openly about mental health and their experiences. Um, Taraji was a substitute teacher before she blew up on the big screen. Um, and she recognizes that a lot of kids are coming from, you know, traumatic home situations and neighborhoods. So she's using her experience to, um, and she's been very vocal about mental health, um, her personal experiences and, you know, her journey and just mental health overall and mental health awareness. So, um, yeah, I this is um I, I like reading through this article and, and learning more and more about this um her curriculum and endeavor. What were your what would you take away with this? Um, I think this is a good thing. Um, I think it's another example of somebody who like same same way we were talking about Carmelo Anthony, um, somebody putting their money where their mouth is, and not only that, she's not a patat a passive participant, right? Um, you can tell by how she was talking about it. She said this was motivated by the pandemic and like police brutality, racial injustice, all of those things. Um, what, what I was liked is that like, she was talking about her experiences as a substitute teacher and how, you know, when I, how she worked with like predominantly black boys and she was just talking about from her, her perspective, her opinion, I guess they were in like a special ed class. Mm -hmm. um, and she was talking about how a lot of them came from traumatic backgrounds <clears throat> and she felt you know, like um, not saying she didn't specifically say they were misclassified, but I think she was kind of making a point of trauma background, you know, behavioral problems. And, you know, a lot of these children end up in this special ed kind of environment. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, nobody doesn't have to try to take her head off, you know, you know, um, because she didn't say they were misdiagnosed or anything like that. But I think she had a valid point because what it brought my mind to start thinking about was trauma right and some of these common diagnoses that we see like adhd which is usually tied with oppositional defiant disorder and how when we look at traumatized boys specifically a lot of those those um symptoms can it's like the hyperactivity the defiance a lot of those symptoms can overlap right right um so it could be very easy for us as mental health professionals to walk into a situation you know um and again, not not saying that every child is misdiagnosed, but walking to one situation and, you know, people are looking at it in one perspective, you know, um, and for us to start looking at it as, at, at another once we get more background information. And I think she was saying that because the relationship she had with these kids, she was getting the background information, right? They were talking to her about their traumatic home life and, and things they were getting into outside of school. So she was kind of making those connections. So I think that's that's very important. Um, and again, that's something that we've been kind of doing on the inside, too, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And again, it's a very big problem when you talk about children of color um, and having people in schools in different places differentiate difficult behaviors and trauma. OK, from hyperactivity, specifically when we come when we start talking about ADHD and behaviors that rise to the level of oppositional defiant disorder. A lot of times this stuff gets mucked up together. So um, I appreciate what she's doing. I think it's, it's going to be a good uh, resource um, and I think it's needed, you know? Yeah. I loved, I loved every, every, um, every minute reading this, what I appreciated most or what stood out for me was the, the safe space that she was providing kids. And as you know, when kids come to school, if they bond with a teacher, you know, that a lot of information is going to come out. Right. right? They're going to talk about what's going on in the neighborhood. They're going to talk about what's happening at home. You're going to, the teachers are going to overhear the conversations, right? We have to call what, what I appreciate. You know, and I don't think people, you know, what they underestimate with teachers is that they're with the kids more than the parents are. Right. right? The teachers are, are with your kids eight to nine hours out of the day. So, you know, they're the ones developing rapport where, you know, parents are 
pretty much reinforcing whatever's going on in the classroom. And depending on the age, a lot of teachers or a lot of kids develop really decent relationships with these teachers and they open up to them. So I'm happy that she's using this opportunity. She's using, you know, her platform to say, hey, you know what? This here's a space right here's a six week program where we're going to educate them about mental health, giving them the opportunity to talk about these things. Right. Giving them a space to do that. And you're going to bring in experts. You're going to bring in therapists. You're going to bring in educators. So not only are the kids able to talk about their experiences, now they're able to have talk to someone who specializes in and say, hey, this is what you're dealing with. This is what you're feeling. This is what it is. Right. So now they can make sense of it because it's difficult for any kid. I don't care what age they can be experiencing an intense emotion or they're experiencing circumstances. And if they're not informed of what it is, they're going to make of it maybe whatever their friends or what, whatever their group is telling. Right. So I'm, I'm happy that she's creating this area and this, this space for her to be able to, to allow these kids to have an opportunity to talk about what's going on. And I love the fact, like we talked about it last week is that I need a face, right? We need more faces to promote mental health. I mean, unfortunately it shouldn't have to be that way where you need a face for things to gain momentum and to gain traction, but you do, this is with any health conditions that you need faces. You need people of a certain stature of a certain celebrity to come out and say, Hey, I've experienced this, you know, personally, and I want to, you know, get more information. I want to get help. So now other people are able to say, Hey, you know what? Yeah. You know what? This I'm experiencing that too. So then, you know, it it starts to grow and get more information. You get more funding, you get more research, all these other different things. So I'm, I'm, I'm completely with this, um, this initiative and this campaign and, um, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm happy that, you know, more celebrities and more individuals are, are, are promoting initiatives like this. I mean, listen, man, I, I think it's a fact. Um, I, I, I think it's important that, you know, what you said, like in terms of faces, that's an important part. Um, she's an important person. Um, so for her to kind of pick up the ball on this one and run, you got to give her, you know, credit because she didn't have to do that. Right. This is probably a thousand charities, different things that she could put her time towards. Um, and I think what we got to remember is, you know, some of the benefits in terms of, you know, um, some of the things we talked about before, right? Um, these children, you know, they may be at the end of it, they may be young, but when we talk about intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they're still experiencing it, right? When they're developing their identity and learning about things that have gone on in the past and, you know, why they're in the situations that they're in, right? So, you know, some of the benefits of this, you know, is, you know, to insulate them, you know, from some of those feelings of shame or guilt that can come if you're if you're misinformed about why you're feeling the way you feel. You know what I mean? Um, and with a lot of this information, like a lot of people don't understand that coping, when we talk about coping, you know, without empowerment, a lot of times coping is just learned helplessness. You know what I mean? You could teach somebody how to survive, you know, um, in a storm, right? But if you don't empower them, right? Um, then you may leave them in a worse place, you know, than, than where you started, right? So we want to bring in, and of course, you know, they're, they're extremes to everything I'm talking about. But but the point is, we want to couple those two things, right? We don't want to treat people, we don't want to just teach people how to manage their feelings of anxiety without giving them, you know, strategies to directly act upon the stressor that gave them the anxiety, right? We want to empower them. So I think, putting things in places like this to give them the information, right. Um, sets them up to be empowered. So you know, I'm, I'm yeah, definitely yeah. happy. I like the, I like the, um, the modeling aspect of it. Right. So like you say, you see someone like Taraji, who's, I don't know her personally, but she's very down to earth. Right. She seems like, you know, the way she posts the roles that she takes. And I mean, she's a very gifted actress. Um, but I'm happy that she's reaching back into her roots, right? She's reaching back to her childhood or not her childhood, but when she was teaching and helping people and she's modeling this behavior by having experts and other folks come in, like you said, and it, it, it brings another level, like you mentioned, to the empowerment of saying, hey, you know what? It's OK to feel this way because it also normalizes and say, hey, what you're going through, yeah, you have every right to feel and, you know, the way that you do. And this is how we're going to get through it together because it also brings a sense of community. 
when you create this safe space, when you have all of these other different individuals where you have students, where you have all these other different experts and therapists and people coming through, now you're bringing a sense of community where you're making it okay, right? You're normalizing and say, all right, this is what we're experiencing. Hey, I got you. Like you said, you're linking it and you're having these folks. And now you're creating a great environment for people to be able to it's okay for me to speak up. It's okay for me to get these, you know, the services. If we get to them, whether young and say, Hey, going to therapy is okay. Right. Imagine what that can do. Like you said, that's where we, we be able to, to, we're able to change that intergenerational trauma because no longer is it getting passed on with untreated. Now it's like, Hey, you right. know, it's okay to talk to a therapist. It's okay to talk to a professional. It's okay to have these other different roles and have these other different support. So um, I'm loving all of this, man. So I'm, I'm hoping um, that more endeavors and initiatives like this continue to grow and pop up because um, this, this is great. And it's, it's so beneficial and needed in our community. So I'm loving it. Yeah, I agree, man. I, I just hats off to her. Um, I don't really have anything else to add to that, man, but hats off to her. This is end on a good note. Absolutely. You know, so uh, if there isn't anything else, uh, we'll wrap things up. You got anything else, Dr. J, before we roll out of here? No, we just want to uh, thank everybody for listening, um, subscribing. Please um, continue to send the questions, video questions and questions through the email. Uh, right now, we're just working out some, uh, you know, glitches in terms of how how to get them on the show the, the best way. Um, but continue to send them to the Black Psychologist Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, sir. Um, and again, we want to thank everybody for listening. I'm definitely humbled by the support um, and thankful. Absolutely. That's it for me. All right. I couldn't say it uh, any better than that. So um, everybody appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Stay safe out there. Even though we're not in May anymore, it's always Mental Health Awareness Month. All right. And I wish everybody out there good mental health. Dr. J, always a pleasure, sir. All right, my brother. I'm going to talk to you soon. All right, bro. All right.